Dr. Shannon Sovendahl with Match on a Fire, Medicine and More podcast. Let the healing begin. Hi, welcome to Match on a Fire, Medicine and More podcast. I'm Dr. Shannon Sovendahl and I'm sitting next to my beautiful wife, Stephanie Sovendahl. What's up? What's up? Hey, before we get started, I have one quick announcement. I'm running a free five-day, 300-second challenge. Let's face it, everyone's motivation begins to dwindle now and again but I believe the 300 second challenge can help. If you listen to our first podcast, we talked about 300 seconds a day. It's our path to greatness. If we devote just 300 seconds, that's five minutes every day to making incremental progress on our vision and goal, then we can achieve greatness. So if you want to be part of the group says, hell yes, let's do this then sign up for the challenge. We can encourage each other in forming the greatness habit. To learn more about this and get specifics of the free challenge, head over to the website, drsovendahl.com slash 300 challenge. That's D-R-S-O-V-N-D-A-L dot com slash three zero zero challenge. Thanks for showing up. Beautiful. That I was, nice. I was worried after I talked, talked so much in that last podcast, you weren't coming back. I had to have a drink before I came back. <laughs> <laughs> so now you can keep talking. I'll keep drinking. Okay. We were joking that as you listen to a shock lecture, what if you had to take a shot every time someone said shock? shock. We, we, we in residency, we were, this maybe reveals too much information, but I, in residency, we were at a journal club and a group of us decided that every time someone said statistically significant, we had to take a shot. Oh, that would have been good for yeah. my life. And we were like at a restaurant bar. It was great. <laughs> anyway, today we're going to talk about specifically hemorrhagic shock. And the title of this podcast is really shock and awe. And the reason Sounds I like to, cool. yeah, shock and awe and damage control resuscitation. When I think about hemorrhagic shock, I think about shock and awe from the first Gulf War. And it might be- We're already three shots deep, just no, so you know. We're not, we're not really. Just so- <laughs> no, I'm saying, now every time you oh, say shock. <laughs> that, would, that would be a lot. That's yeah. right, and we're only like a minute in. Yeah. <laughs> so shock and awe makes me think of that first Gulf War and probably dating myself as to how old I am. But when that war started, the concept of the, the battle was essentially shock and awe. It was that we were going to overwhelm the enemy. The enemy would be so overwhelmed that they would not be able to put up any fight and we would just roll into Baghdad. And that's essentially what happened. The air strikes were so just so extensive and the armored divisions were just too much to, to handle and they just rolled into Baghdad, right? And that's essentially what happens when someone has shock. There's a couple of ways to look at this. The person who is undergoing shock is being overwhelmed by the, the assault. So if they got shot and they bled on the floor, they're now going into shock. Their body is completely overwhelmed by this hypovolemic shock that they're, that they're dealing with. And the same is kind of true when they roll into the ER is that the ER is trying to overwhelm the shock. So, so many people show up to the shock patient to essentially try to, you know, treat every part of this condition, respiratory therapist, ER doctor, you know, central line place or like nurses, everyone's there to try to overwhelm the condition. And so that's kind of the framework of this is that it's just an overwhelming insult to your body when you're in shock. So we have to be aggressive when we treat this. And if we kind of look back on how we were taught to do this. Steph, how were you taught to treat shock when you were in paramedic school? Well, for hypovolemic shock. Yeah, hemorrhagic we were shock. We're speaking so about hemorrhagic, hemorrhagic shock Hemorrhagic, hypovolemic. And once again, yep, discern those two. I was taught vitals. If their vitals were low, we got to get their vitals to be normal. So the, how we did that were a couple large bore IVs, tons of normal saline, chest bump in the ER when we got him to 120 over 80. and Move on. Yeah. And this is essentially, you know, it was ATLS treat, treatment. Like that's what the ATLS book said. And it came from really the Vietnam War where we first started to really get an idea of 
what should we do when we're treating trauma, right? And so we had these soldiers get hurt. You know, four guys picked them up on a pram, ran them to a Huey helicopter. They got medevaced out and then they got treated. They got treated with vital signs, large bore IVs, normal saline, you know, whatever we had to treat them. So that was back in Vietnam. And if you think about you going to medic school, what year did you go to medic school? 2006. So 2006. So Vietnam was in the 60s, right? And in 2006, they're teaching essentially the same thing that they taught in Vietnam. And, and when I was researching this, I thought it was interesting because I, I looked up a picture from the Vietnam War and had the four soldiers running with the gurney to a Huey helicopter. And then if you look at Afghanistan, you know, last month, there's four soldiers running with a pram to a Black Hawk helicopter. And the pictures are almost identical, you know, and it's, it kind of made me think that, think about going to the moon over this period of time. Think about cell phones, self-driving cars, like all of this stuff that has developed over this last 40 years. Yeah, it's just so evolved. And then we say, let's pull out the ATLS book and see what it says, you know, from Vietnam to Steph's medic days, it says essentially the same thing. And so what I want us to do is to step back for a minute and kind of relook at the, the situation. And if you imagine a picture of the earth floating in space right now, you're thinking about the earth floating there in space. How did you picture that? Where, you know, was the, was the continental United States right in the middle of your picture? What if we all of a sudden flipped it upside down and it was Africa upside down? And that's what you're looking at from space. And that's really what I want to talk about. I want to reorient ourselves to say, hey, look at this earth and let's look at it from a totally different direction than we don't than we used to. We need a new perspective. And I first thought of this because my, one of my heroes, his name's Story Musgrave. He's a astronaut, but he's also a physician. He went to my med school. I just thought he was rad. So I got him to speak at our graduation from med school. He has gone to space, I think like six or seven times. He's actually the guy that fixed the Hubble telescope. So he was turning the wrench when the Hubble telescope broke. And I'm like, that's crazy. This guy was a farmer, became a doctor, and then became an astronaut and has gone to space six times. And he, in this lecture, talked to us about our perspective and how we look at the earth and how we always think that it needs to be right side up. But from space, there is no right side up, right? The shuttle's flying around the earth. You're getting these different perspectives. And it was really kind of stuck with me that I always try to think of things slightly different than the way I was originally approaching them. Last podcast, we talked about shock, right? Yep. Steph, you want to read that definition of shock we used last week? You're making me read aloud again. Yep. I thought you learned your lesson. Condition of reduced tissue perfusion resulting in inadequate delivery of oxygen and nutrients that are necessary for cellular function. And then we kind of categorize the shocks into four different parts, right? Hypovolemic shock, cardiogenic shock, distributive shock, obstructive shock. Today, we're talking about specifically hemorrhagic hypovolemic shock. And I mentioned that I like to think about shock as a supply and demand problem. And we got to think about both sides of that equation. Supply is equal to oxygen content times cardiac output. Cardiac output is equal to stroke volume, which is dependent on preload, afterload, and contractility. And you multiply that by heart rate and you get your output. We then need to worry about our systemic vascular resistance because that affects how much flow we get. And then on the demand side, when we're having hemorrhagic shock, we have increased demand because we're under this immense amount of stress. We talked about the vicious circle of shock, which was decreased blood return to the heart, decreased cardiac output, decreased blood flow, tissue hypoxia, acidosis, tissue vasodilatation and permeability, peripheral pooling of fluid, reduced blood volume, and decreased blood return to the heart. And that cycle just continues. And that's what we're talking about in this lecture. When we have a patient that is hemorrhagic shock, 
they are so hypovolemic that their body's in this extreme state of stress. And they all play on each other. I mean, that's the thing yeah. I want to focus on, right? They all make each other worse. Steph, what kills trauma patients? We know three things kill trauma patients in the geometric shape of a triangle, if I remember right. <laughs> three, I always say when, what, three things, what, what kills trauma patients? Bullets to the head. Bullets kill trauma patients. That Cars. true. Cars kill trauma patients. But if we're talking about the physiology. Zombies. Yeah, zombies kill them. <laughs> well, if they don't die from the injury, three things kill trauma patients. Hypothermia, acidosis, and coagulopathy. The triad of death. Dun, dun, dun. You have a sound effect for that. Oh, you? I do. Wait. Let's see. That's not a sound effect. I think it's green. There should be a sound effect for that. Those three things kill trauma patients. Let's just break it down. Let's look at each of these individual things that kill trauma patients. So let's start with hypothermia. We know that if someone gets hypothermic when they're a trauma patient, they have worse outcomes. And there's a military study out there that shows if they're less than 32.8, there's 100% mortality in that study. That's a big percent. Yeah. And if people get less than 35 degrees, it significantly increases, increases. their risk of death. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we got to be really on the ball with this, keeping our patients from, you know, getting cold. Yeah. So in the ambulance, right, we think we have warm fluids. Some people have IV warmers for their fluids, but no one really, well, in the local agencies I've seen, they don't actually know what those warm their fluids to. Some places I've worked in that don't have them. We throw them on the dash and buy the heater and we just, we have no idea what warming them to. So if they're not being warmed to 98 degrees, we're cooling our patients still, right? So we yeah. still have to think about that. So even, even the best warmer, warmer, even in the ER is not 98.6. It's not 6, warming yeah. them to what we, what we need them to be warmed to. And then remember too, on a hot day, if it's 90 degrees out and we get our patients naked, trauma naked, we expose them, they're still losing heat then too. So we still have to address that kind of stuff. This goes all the way through the process, right? Because when they roll into the ER, our trauma bay is actually heated. The door's shut Mm -hmm. and the trauma bay is heated. And the reason for that is this, they become hypothermic in the ER because we get all fired up about doing our fast exam and central lines and doing all this stuff. And we have our patient exposed and it's causing a problem. The second part of the triad is acidosis. And acidosis is tricky because, you know, your acid base balance in your body really balances everything. (laughs) Like it controls all of your physiologic systems. So if that gets out of whack, then we start having a problem. And if you become acidotic, you start to hinder your coagulation. And that's the next point we're going to go to. But when you become acidotic, you don't coagulate as well, which causes us a big problem. You also get some specific physiologic changes with that, right? You get decreased cardiac output when you're acidotic. You can get bradyarrhythmias, dysrhythmias. All this stuff happens because you're acidotic and it you know, just complicates the problem. We measure this stuff, you know, with either point of care testing or in the ER, you can do base deficit, lactic acid. You can do these things to determine acidosis. One of the things too, we have to remember is that patients who have suffered trauma and are hypovolemic from that trauma, their bodies are on their own creating an acidotic state. So the third component of the triad of death is coagulopathy. And this is a really common one uh, that kills patients. So if I get shot, I bleed out on the floor, half of my blood's on the floor. I've just lost half of my clotting factors. So I'm not clotting as well. And that causes me to obviously bleed out more. The other part of this is when I become stressed because of the trauma, my factors that remain do not work as well as they should. So that's just from the stress of the trauma. 
So I kind of have a double whammy here. I lost some factors potentially from bleeding, but then the factors that I have remaining aren't working as well as they should. And hypothermia and acidosis also cause coagulopathy. So Absolutely, once again, yeah. these all play on each other. And that's why we talk about the trial of death because they all feed on themselves, right? They all kind of just keep working around this triangle. If you think about what our goal is as providers, it's really taking a patient from the moment of impact and getting them home. So if we can say, hey, immediately when this patient got hurt, we're already on the game plan of preventing them from dying. We're facilitating them going back to their families. That's our goal. So, you know, Steph as a paramedic on the street, she shouldn't be high-fiving people just because she got someone to the ER. She wants to high-five someone because she got them to the ER with all of these things covered, right? She was doing the appropriate care in the field to then cover them. So Steph brings a patient in from the field and has kept them warm. And then I get them in the ER and I pull the blanket off and I examine them and let them get cold. Then I shouldn't be high-fiving anybody when I get them to the ICU because I've failed on this triad of death. So it really starts at the beginning and it goes all the way to the end. It's continuity of care. It's getting the patient home to their family. That's our goal. Kind of thinking back to that initial teaching that Steph had in paramedic school. Hey, let's check the vital signs. Let's get large bore IVs in. Let's give them normal saline. Let's stop the bleeding. All of that stuff is kind of what we were taught when we were doing ATLS. But what I want to talk about today is damage control resuscitation, which is slightly different. Have you talked about damage control much, Steph? A few times. Yeah, a few times. Heard it. So when we talk about damage control resuscitation, we're talking about five things. We're talking about aggressive hypothermic management, bleeding control, permissive hypotension, just the big words right now. Yeah. I'm talking a lot about that. Hemostatic resuscitation in damage control surgery. So five components of this. Aggressive hypothermic management, bleeding control, permissive hypotension, hemostatic resuscitation, and damage control surgery. The two that I think we really are going to focus on here are numbers three and four, which is permissive hypotension and hemostatic resuscitation, because that's really where we can make kind of a difference in what we currently do. Meaning, I want to drive home the point that you need to keep your patient from becoming hypothermic. But we were taught that in ATLS. Like they told us, don't let your trauma patients get cold. So we got to emphasize that. Don't let your trauma patients get cold. Don't let your patients bleed. Yeah. Don't let your patients bleed. We learned that originally bleed, too. So right? bleeding control. Yeah. We learned that originally. Aggressive so these tourniquets. New concepts are what we're talking about yeah. today, which are these permissive hypotension and hemostatic resuscitation. Exactly. So let's focus in on those two things. I'm going to give you that overview of damage control. The overview really is that we're just trying to reverse that lethal triad. And if we can do that, then we're kind of doing our job. So from the first component of damage control resuscitation, hypothermia, we need to keep our patients warm. Okay, we kind of drove that point home. The second one is bleeding control, rapid tourniquet application, you know, good pressure dressings. Don't have your ambulance look terrible when you roll into the ER with blood everywhere. You know, try to try to stop that bleeding. The third, this is where we're going to hone in a little bit, is permissive hypotension. So this feels a little uncomfortable for us because when we have a patient that's hypotensive and they're a trauma patient. We get nervous. Yeah, I get super nervous, right? I don't want to roll into the ER with their pressure at 70. Yeah, and then some mean ER doc yells at you. They're and, all mean. And then Steph says, <laughs> hey man, hypotensive. Permissive. Permissive hypotension. hypotension. Get off my back. So we're going to talk about a couple studies, but I don't want to go too in depth in the studies because it just becomes a little bit tedious and boring. But there is literature out there to support this permissive hypotension. And it actually started happening you know, a while ago, and it takes a while for this stuff to catch on. There was a New England Journal article a while back that was called Immediate Versus Delayed Fluid Resuscitation for Hypotensive Patients with Penetrating Torsal Trauma. So in this study, they found that when they 
kind of followed a permissive hypotension pathway that an 8% decrease in mortality. So that's a little bit reassuring. You can go out there and find a bunch of studies that are very specific, meaning they're looking at chest trauma or abdominal trauma or pelvic trauma, and how does this affect their mortality? When you look at the studies, you have to say, what was their primary goal in the study? What was their outcome? And how well did they follow the protocol? So I read a few studies when I was preparing for this podcast, and you know the result was essentially no change in mortality when you did permissive hypotension versus regular resuscitation. But if you looked at the study, one of them in the treatment group, 31% of the group didn't even get the treatment that they were talking about, meaning they didn't get the fluid resuscitation. So it's kind of comparing a group that was hypotensive and not resuscitated to a group that was supposed to be resuscitated and wasn't. wasn't. And they saw no change in that mortality. So that doesn't really, you know, yeah, it doesn't really help me all that much. There was a huge observational or cohort study they did that had 776,000 patients in it. It was called the pre-hospital intravenous fluid administration is associated with higher mortality in trauma patients, a national trauma data bank analysis. And in this study, the unadjusted mortality was significantly higher in patients receiving pre-hospital IV fluids. And this obviously isn't the strongest study because it's a retrospective cohort study, but it still had a huge number of patients in there to kind of lead us in the direction of what is the best you know, treatment option. So when you look at all these different studies and you get a little confused because some are positive, some aren't, you kind of have to take the whole database into your mind and say, what makes sense to me? So I'm a huge fan of Dark Knight, Christopher Nolan. Mm-hmm. Love all it's that true. stuff. It's so good. But there's a scene in Dark Knight where Bane is talking to a guy and he says, I am necessary evil. And if you guys want to go Google that, it's awesome. But he's kind of saying that you need me. I'm the necessary evil in this whole situation. And that's how I think of permissive hypertension. Permissive hypertension isn't is, good. Yeah, it's not good. <laughs> it's not good for us to have patients that low from trauma. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just a necessary evil, meaning that don't leave this podcast and say, oh, they said that you should just have hypotensive patient trauma patients, out. right? That's not what we're saying. This is not a treatment. It's not a goal, meaning I'm not trying to have them have a low blood pressure. This is a bad situation. Your trauma patient has low blood pressure. So now what is the best course of action knowing that your patient has a low pressure? And really what we're getting at here is, should we in the field try to bump that number up with normal saline or lactate ringers? That's all we got. Yeah, because that's what we have. I mean, if you have blood in the field, that might be a different discussion. We'll get into that in just a sec. But with the permissive hypertension, it's a necessary evil. Meaning I got to let my patient be low because that might be the best thing. Better option than filling them with the fluid. Yeah. There's an article in the Journal of Trauma that was called Hypotensive Resuscitation Strategy Reduces Transfusion Requirements and Severe Postoperative Coagulopathy in Trauma Patients with Hemorrhagic Shock. The Preliminary Results of a Randomized Controlled Trial. And what this trial looked at, it did two treatment groups. It did a treatment group with a low MAP of 50 and a high MAP of 65. But when we look at those two groups, I do think that we need to just address MAP because it's not always a number that we use and it can get confusing. So Steph, do you want to explain when we talk about MAP, what we're talking about? Sure. So everyone, I think in pre-hospital, when they have a uh, monitor, your monitor, when it cycles blood pressure, does pop up a MAP. (laughs) However, when we're auscultating pressures, if you don't have a monitor to just pop up a MAP for you, every time you cycle Just a quick, easy way to think about this is 
It's a quick calculation. I think most people could do it in their head. What you want to do is you take systolic plus two times the diastolic and divide that number by three. And um, I think I probably stole this from you, Shannon. But the way I, you know, the way I remember it is that when our heart squeezes, one third of the time it's in systole and two thirds of the time it's in diastole. So squeeze, rest, rest, squeeze, rest, rest. And that's where we get that equation. So because of that though, too, you can do this equation differently. This is just what's in my head of what worked for me and how it stuck. So systolic is how I do it. Systolic plus two times diastolic divided by three. So an example to just get that solidified in your noggin is if we take a pressure on a patient and their blood pressure sucks, right? It's 70 over 40. That is going to give us a map of 50. So what we're doing is we're doing seven plus two times 40 divided by three. And that gives us our 50. The thing that strikes me when you just did that example is if you have a patient with a pressure of 70 over 40, you're anxious. I am super stressed. Like when that <laughs> patient rolls in the ER and the paramedic's like, last pressure was 70 over 40. I mean, if before I read these articles, if you said, yeah, you should just leave them there. That's mm -hmm. perfect. Mm -hmm. I'd be like, are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. So again, when we're talking about this uh, in that study, the low MAP group was 50. And then that was compared to a high MAP group of 65. And if we do another example, which we, we won't you know, bore you with, but 65 is not that great. Like yeah. that's a blood pressure. You know, you're like, this like guy has a pressure over. of 90, right? <laughs> and you're like, oh, that still stresses me out. So they're kind of comparing two patients that would stress me out in the ER. And what the study found is that when you compared those two groups, the low MAP group, the group that had a MAP of 50, they got less blood products, they had less coagulopathy, and they had lower mortality. Which is crazy yeah, for us to 70 think 70 over 40, right? So- yeah. What uh, do you do with all your blood pumps now? Yeah. Right? When you're like- uh... So that's super, uh, I think, stressful and it's hard to grasp that we're going to a place that is necessary evil. It is bad but it's just where we maybe have to stay to get this decreased mortality. And all this stuff that we talk about, you know, I always find it interesting that stuff does cycle. So maybe in 10 years, we're having a little different discussion. I hope we're having a different discussion because we're moving forward. But right now, it seems that different trauma organizations and the studies, when you read them, they do pour, push towards this permissive hypotension. And this seems to get decreased mortality and get people back to their families. And that's really what our end goal is. Moving on to the Fourth component of damage control resuscitation, we talked about hemostatic resuscitation. And the problem with your trauma patients that are bleeding out or shot is that they're losing whole blood, right? They bled out onto the ambulance floor, whole blood. That has everything in it, right? It's not just red blood cells, it's everything. And then we say, well, let's treat this. How are we going to treat it? Well, we grab some salt water. Let's give them some salt water. And I'm going to tell you that salt water does not equal whole blood right? And this causes a big problem for us when we're trying to teach these individual things. If we were to say, let's look at the lethal triad, we have hypothermia, acidosis, and coagulopathy. How does normal saline affect each of those? So to just try to be brief on this, normal saline is going to cool our patients. And I don't care if you say, oh, I got a IV warmer and we're warming our fluid. Most IV warmers out there don't tell you what you're warming to and most don't get it to 98. So even if that's your argument, I think it still is cooling people because yeah. we're not getting to our 98. How about so, acidosis? How does uh, normal saline affect acidosis? Well, the pH of normal saline is 5.5. So once again, our bodies are already in a state of acidosis on its own from the trauma generally. And then we're going to come in with a solution because of the chloride that's 5.5 pH. So we're going to dump a ton of 
acid. <laughs> and I think that the, it kind of blew system. my mind. I was listening to an MCRT podcast and they were talking about acidosis. It's like a four-part series. You should listen to it because it's amazing. It totally changed my whole perspective of acidosis, which, you know, in school, I was worried about the Henderson-Hasselbalch equation and, and hydrogen ions. But really what we're worried about is ions in general like chloride, sodium, the sodium's positive, chloride's negative. This affects our pH and our acid balance. And then we go ahead and we throw in sodium chloride to the mix, which is 5.5. And that just causes us to become more acidotic. So it's not helping the problem. Lastly, how does normal saline affect coagulopathy? Uh, well, normal saline doesn't have any of those good things that help us clot anyways, right? Yeah. So, and I mean, when we get shot, right? Like, as I said before, we shot, we bleed half of our volume on the floor. So I just lost half of my clotting factors. Yep. Now those clotting factors that remain, I'm going to dilute them down with some salt water. So that means each particular cell is seeing less clotting factors float by, which doesn't help us clot or stop the bleeding that we're dealing with. So really, when we think about this, we're giving salt water to the triad of death. It doesn't help any of the three things that kill trauma and patients. It all perpetuate yeah. all makes each other worse. So, so I kind of say, if you're going to give, you know, me normal saline, you might as well just give me Guinness. Guinness. <laughs> I'll take tequila. <laughs> the other part of this uh, hemostatic resuscitation, we lost whole blood onto the floor of the ambulance. So really what we need to try to do is get back whole blood if we're going to try to resuscitate them. And that's why you hear about these massive transfusion protocol, hospital alerts and things like that, because what the hospital is trying to do is trying to mimic whole blood. We don't have whole blood in the hospital, but we have the components of whole blood. So we're going to give people pack cells, FFP, platelets. We're going to try to make whole blood out of the blood products that we have. And that's really, when you're resuscitating a trauma patient, I'm going to say, hey, I don't want to give them salt water. I want to give them whole blood. What's the next best thing to whole blood? It's all the components of whole blood, which I have in my hospital. The last piece of damage control is damage control surgery. And this is, you know, kind of out of my realm and out of your realm, probably if you're a trauma surgeon listening to this. And if you are, hi, trauma surgeon listening to our podcast, probably not. Damage control surgery, back in the day when someone was shot, what they used to do is they would go in and operate on them and try to fix everything. They're like, we're in here anyway, let's fix everything, right? So they could have prolonged periods of time in the operating room to fix all the problems that the bullet caused. And if you think about it, when I cut into a patient, and open them up, they're losing a fair amount of heat. So already I'm not helping the hypothermic standpoint because I just cut into a person and they're losing heat. I'm also causing trauma when I cut into somebody to do surgery and muck around in their guts. And this actually causes a coagulopathy. It causes them not to coagulate as well. So I'm already hurting them just by opening them up. I'm not helping my triad of death. So now this general concept of damage control resuscitation, the reason we use the term damage control resuscitation is it comes from the Navy, right? When a ship used to get hit, it would you know, be concerned that they're going to sink and the all hands on deck to stop this ship from sinking. They wouldn't fix the ship back to normal. They just needed to stop the ship from sinking. And that's what damage control is. In the Navy, when your ship gets torpedoed, damage control, right? Close the hatches, get this ship to not sink, and then we'll tow it back to harbor and we'll fix you know, everything that needs to be fixed. Plug the hole. Yeah. Get it and that's, that's what really we're going to do with our damage control resuscitation as well. So let's just summarize. Let's go back to EMS damage control resuscitation. Steph, you want to take us through the steps for EMS damage control resuscitation? Sure. So once again, you guys, just to reiterate some of the big things we need to be focusing on pre-hospital, right? Before we do our chest pump, before we do our high fives, is we really need to make sure we are being 
awesome at our hypothermia treatment. So just still make sure you still got to get them trauma naked, but cover them back up. You should be sweating, not because you're nervous, but you should be sweating in that ambulance because it's hot. So make sure we're really paying attention to hypothermia and treating that. We also want to make sure we're addressing hemorrhage control. So don't forget your tourniquets. Don't forget your pressure dressings. Don't forget to you know stop the bleed, if you will. So make sure we're addressing that. And then small boluses of fluid, you guys. Really right now in our local protocol, we gone, once again, gone are the days at the big two large bore blood pump IVs and dumping a ton of saline in, get their pressure 120 over 80. That's not our goal anymore. We know that that's not the best thing for the patient. So our local protocol is 250 fluid boluses, 250 uh, mLs or cc's. And we're only doing that to radial pulses and mentation and or mentation, I should say. So we don't have a set systolic goal anymore. We're looking for radial pulses and mentation. I think that set goal is a little bit frustrating, but you know, I pulled up a, a study and, it, and I'll kind of read it verbatim just because it, it points this point out. But it says, unfortunately, no evidence-based recommendations exist from any of the field's leading trauma organizations. In their absence, the findings from historic military medical sources, modern urban transport studies, and recent laboratory animal models suggest that trauma patients without definitive hemorrhage control should have a limited increase in blood pressure until definitive surgical control of bleeding can be achieved. So again, what's disappointing a little bit for you there is you want a number. I want them Mm -hmm. to give me a number like, hey, keep their systolic pressure at 100 or keep it at 90. And a lot of systems, and I've seen other you know, EMS protocols, they do put a number in there. But again, know that it's just us trying to, to make our best guess at it. I see 90 systolic a lot out yeah. there. And so again, there's no We've recommendation from, from yeah, trauma.org or something like that. You just got to try to say, hey, I know the triad of death. I know this normal sailing is not good. I want to limit its use, but I need to get my patient to the hospital alive, right? So I'm going to have to give boluses at times because I can't come in totally pulseless. I have to have some sort of pressure. So it's a tricky situation, but you know, that that's the best we can say is that you just want to limit the normal saline as much as possible. So the last component of the EMS damage control resuscitation stuff. So then the next thing and final thing we really need to focus on is rapid transport. So we're going to do this stuff. We're going to do it quick. We're going to address all of those things, hypothermia, hemorrhage control, small boluses just to keep them alive. And we need to also be moving. So get to the hospital because we do know that they still need that damage control surgery. So don't wait on scene. Yeah. Don't mess around. Don't. As much you know. as we hate to admit it, we need the trauma surgeon. We still do. <laughs> Hopefully in 10 That's years. That's why the that trauma surgeons act like they know it. it. <laughs> They're like, you need me. And then for hospital damage control resuscitation, man, it's going to sound really redundant. Hypothermic management, hemorrhage control, blood products instead of normal saline or lactated ringers damage control surgery. And then once we complete that damage control surgery, aggressive normalization of physiology, meaning I'm going to give them blood products. I'm going to give them potentially pressures. Once that hole is plugged, I need to get their pressure back up. I need to get them perfusing normally. So kind of in summation, we said, hey, back in the day, your ATLS protocol told you to get some vital signs, do large bore IVs, give some normal saline. And I think today we've kind of ad nauseum hammered this point home. We're worried about the triad of death. Normal saline is not the best thing for the triad of death. So let's try to do damage control resuscitation. Any other comments, Steph? I think we got it. I think we covered it. All right. High five. Chest. Yeah. We'll see you guys uh, on the next podcast, hopefully. Peace out. I'm Shannon Sovendahl, and that's our show. 
Thanks for tuning in to Match on a Fire, Medicine, and More. If you have any questions, shoot me an email at shannon at matchonafire.com. And if you're enjoying the show, head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Thanks. We appreciate you listening. 